This is the MG Car Club podcast with Wayne Scott and Adam Sloman. On this episode, we argue for and against electric MGBs, and we pay tribute to the man that created the MGB, Don Hater, who passed away earlier this month, aged 94. The MG Car Club podcast. Hello and welcome to another MG Car Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you here. Hope you're well. Adam Sloman as well, over there in Kimber House. How you doing, Adam? Really good, thank you. And you? I feel refreshed after our fantastic weekend last weekend. Uh, Saturday, of course, at the British Motor Museum at Gaydon. What a day we had. Yeah, it was brilliant, wasn't it? Really, really good day. I had a fantastic time walking around all of the cars that had parked up, socially distanced in the British Motor Museum car park. But it was quite a challenge, I have to say, to get in between cars because every other car that I tried to go to, you'd get stopped and you'd start chatting with someone and you'd be there for like half an hour. So the day went past pretty quickly, but I think it was just the fact that I just haven't seen these people in the flesh <laughs> for nearly yeah. a year, you know, and everyone had all sorts of different things to tell and to share. And uh, it was the MG Car Club at its best, really. Absolutely. I mean, it was just so nice to finally have that opportunity to get people together once again. Um, but like you say, there was a lot of um, pent up chat, mm. shall we say, because people <laughs> were just so happy to be with their mates again. But I was blown away by just how safe it felt, how everyone sort of, you know, everyone seemed to be wearing face masks. Like you said, we, we parked all the cars one space apart, so all the cars were socially distanced. Um, but despite the sort of requirements and the masks and all that sort of thing, it still felt like a proper MG Car Club event. It was a really, really good day. What um, really stuck with me was the fact that I eventually asked someone what the time was, thinking it was sort of half nine, ten o'clock. And someone said, told me it was quarter to one. I couldn't believe just how quickly the day was, was rushing by. Yeah, it really did fly by. And I just about managed to get around all of the cars that were there. By the way, if you like statistics... We had just on 350 MGs parked up at British Motor Museum last weekend. Um, and the museum reported fantastic numbers through their doors as well. And we must say thanks uh, to everyone at the museum, but in particular Tom Caron, who was there on the day overseeing things for us. Of course, the events manager over there at uh, the museum. But without them, we couldn't have put that event on. It was down to the fact that they have a COVID-secure venue and that they have the infrastructure in place that we've been able to put that event on. So we owe them a big debt of thanks, don't we? Absolutely. I mean, Tom was was brilliant. Um, Lauren and I, Lauren Gallagher, our events manager here, we we went up to to see Tom uh, a couple of weeks ago just to sort of get the sort of scope of the lay of the land, really. Um, and any concerns we had, Tom immediately put put our minds at ease. And yeah, it was the day went faultlessly from from our perspective. And lots of people had a really good day. And yeah, you can't ask for more than that. And fantastic as well. We promoted this as we were leading up to the event but i think loads of people really enjoyed the fact that not only were there a lot of mg prototypes on display within the british motor museum itself but we were also treated to that amazing display of the mg land speed record cars as well it's quite something to see those cars all on the plinths together isn't it 
Yeah, they look amazing. And it's only when you get up close that you realise just how tiny those cars are. Um, and we're used to seeing, you know, like the, the archive photos and the Pathé footage and all that sort of thing. But to actually see those cars in the metal is, um, yeah, it really is an experience. Yeah, fantastic. One of the cars that caught my eye from our membership, though, that was parked outside within the displays was, of course, that very special MGC that we had turned up, the University Motors Special, one of only a few built. But, of course, that went crazy on social media when we posted the picture up there with its square headlights and its purple metallic paint. Uh, that was a really special car to see, and uh, I know it divided opinion among some, but it's a unique piece of modified mgb history isn't it yeah absolutely and i was thrilled to see i mean we've spoken on the podcast before about how i remembered that particular car and uh, mike horton took took me over to see colin the owner and as we were walking over i said to mike but that can't be the car because the car i remember was british racing green well that car used to be british racing green and is now back to uh, to its uh, i think its original color of, of of purple um and i had a really long chat with colin and he only started restoring that car in march i think um and yeah he's done a tremendous job so um, i'm hoping that i can write it up for safety fast in the near future yeah it'd be a fantastic story to tell that the the mystery to me is where those headlights have come from because they've got quite a curve on the lens so it's not like it's just another set of headlights off the shelf. They've come from somewhere or something. Um, I've heard uh, Colin was saying that he's heard suggestions that they might be Citroen headlights, but they're not quite right for Citroen headlights. So it'd be really interesting if anyone out there has got any knowledge of how University Motors put those cars together um, and where they source things like the headlights, then, then do drop us a line. Yeah, very interesting, actually. Yeah, that's uh, a really good question, and we shall set our loyal listeners out on a mission to find out <laughs> where those headlamps came from. Yeah, I'm seeing the Citroen Diane thing going on there, actually. That does look quite probable to me, but, yeah, it's, you'd have to get the two side by side, really, to try and work it out. But um, it, it wasn't the only car that they made, was it? The, I think they made around 200 of these, didn't they? I'm not sure. I th I've got a feeling that this might be the last one left, though. I think they might have been converted or, or written off or, or no longer on the road. Um, I certainly don't know of another square headlighted, uh, if that's even a word, um, MGC uh, that's, that's still on the road. Um, and this is the car that I remember from seeing in Safety Fast with my dad back in the early 90s. Mm. Well, there is rumour that they did a MGB v8 gt as well um before the factory did now i don't know whether that's true again we'll leave it to our loyal band of listeners to find those details out but certainly a great story to be told there and lots more research to be done about exactly how many cars were built and the story as to how they went to market and where those bits are from and, and what other things they did as well so we'll uncover it as the weeks go on here on the mg car club podcast but certainly a real standout car from the 350 that were assembled at the british motor museum just last weekend um, we also had a fantastic display of more modern mgs as well and in particular adam a very interesting racing z that turned up as well yeah so nick ashman was there with his zr which uh, i believe was um the first zr built i may be wrong nick i'm sure you'll correct me um but i know that it was used by the works i understand it was a uh, works 
Rally Recce vehicle when the ZR was competing in the Junior World Rally Championship. Very well prepared as well, and he was very proudly showing me all of the <laughs> lumps of grass that he was digging out <laughs> of the sills where it had a bit of an off at Alton Park the weekend before in the rain. A but, bit of a uh, moment. A bit of a moment, yeah, a bit of a brown <laughs> trouser, as we call it in the trade. Uh, but, uh, yeah, fantastic to meet him, and his son was there as well in his ZR, which was parked next door to that car. So it was a real sort of family turnout to the event, which is, of course, what MG Car Club events are all about. And another great thing I saw was an MG Magnet parked Series 2, parked next to a brand new MG3 that had been properly blinged up with LED flashing lights and everything Mm. going on, properly decked out for Halloween. And for me, those two cars sort of side by side really just explain the diversity, the difference in generations and the difference in the type of people that we've got within the car club. It was summed up to me by those two cars parked side by side. That's what I love to see is just the variety that you get within the car club. You know, we've all got our favourites. We've all got our um, our pet uh, MGs. Um, but yeah, when you can go to an event and just see that kind of variety of car all under one umbrella of MG, it's um, yeah, it's really it just makes the club what it is. Absolutely. And who would have ever thought that we'd have had not one, not two, but five MGX powers along? unbelievable fantastic to see the svrs out in uh, in full force and to see that wonderful red uh, one did you see that with the black alloys on it that was yeah. sexy that was yeah they always sexy. turn heads don't they yeah we liked that um and some we have to mention some of the guys driving the pre-war mgs um there were some t-types there was a a j2 there as well there were a whole whole plethora of pre-war sporting mgs and of course the vast majority of which had absolutely no wet weather gear whatsoever not even a hint of a roof (laughs) and those guys brought them out in the rain because we did have some pretty heavy downpours throughout the day and the cold wind and they came out and supported the event anyway those guys are our heroes absolutely absolutely MGF Register were there, of course, celebrating 25 years of the MGF, and they put on a lovely display, and uh, that sort of uh, weird two-tony green car that looked uh, fantastic on their stand caught my eye, and no matter where you sort of stood at different angles, it sort of changes colour. Fantastic. And, uh, of course, the T Register were there with uh, a TD, a TF, and a TC all lined up, some great examples of those cars there was a very hotted up white mgb that i loved with a kind of body kit on it not a sebring kit just like a a front skirt with a number plate ydw that was probably uh, my favorite mgb there because of course we did park all of the mgbs together uh, as a tribute to don hater who of course passed away just before the event at the age of 94 and we'll talk a little bit more about him and his contribution to mg a little bit later on in this podcast but overall adam a fantastic day some great cars we had the mg motor dealership there as well with the brand new mg5 ev so we got to see some of those brand new cars up close as well and it was just nice to have a sprinkle of normality back on proceedings wasn't it 
Definitely. That's, that was the main sort of takeaway. It was nice to see everyone. It was great to do an event. It was wonderful to mark the club's birthday. Um, and yeah, just, just, just to feel that sort of touch of normality that we've all been so desperate for this year. Staying on the MGB theme just for a moment, this is a story that we featured on the MG Car Club news pages at mgcc.co.uk. Now, if I told you about electric cars and MGs, you probably wouldn't be surprised. We talk about them all the time here on the podcast. I've just mentioned one there, the MG5 EV, which is the all-new estate car from MG. But if I told you the next electric car we were going to chat about was an electric classic MGB. Well, the company RBW Electric Classic Cars has revealed a pre-production model of its stylish take on the MGB that is an all-electric vehicle. It's used a brand new heritage body shell from British Motor Heritage, and it sits on its own patented drive system. And uh, they're saying that they're going to have an initial 30 examples of this created, um, and they're hoping to sell it to us lot. Now, question is, what do you think? Is that utterly terrifying? Is it an absolute travesty that they've built an all-electric MGB? Or is this the future of MG motoring? Is this what we're all going to have to enjoy in the future? Are we going to end up converting our own MGBs to run an electric power? Adam, thoughts? I think it's a good thing, personally. Um, I know that some people can sort of label electric vehicles as a bit soulless and a bit um, lifeless, but I I think the opposite is true. Um, You know, if you can bundle that sort of power and flexibility that electric motors offer into something that retains the handling and feel of an MGB, just with a different soundtrack, um, you know, why not? You know, we've already seen the amazing work that uh, Frontline just down the road from us here in Abingdon have done with the LE50 and the Abingdon Edition MGBs that they've built with their MX-5 engine and gearbox. Uh, so why not Why not an electric MGB? I think it's a great idea. It's a little bit beyond my, my price bracket, uh, yeah. I must admit. 90 uh, grand. My means. 90 grand they want for this, plus but, taxes. But, you know, you do pay a price for being an early adopter. You know, there's a premium on being an early adopter. You know, if this works and we get to a point where maybe, you know, give it another 10, 15 years, maybe there's a turnkey kit, you know, maybe there's a conversion option. Um, Would I consider it for my MGB GT? If petrol became something that was really hard to get and it was the thing that stopped me being able to use my MGB? Absolutely. Well, you've taken the pro-electric stance there, Adam, and I'm glad you've done that, really, because I'm going to say the opposite. And I do worry about this somewhat. Now, I'm all in favour of new electric cars, absolutely, if I want to be doing the shopping run or taking the kids on the school run or short trips commuting to the office, then I think the electric vehicle is the way forward for the future. Of course it is. But I guess it depends why you own a classic car there's some reasons why people own a classic car sometimes it's because they want a vehicle with particular history that represents a particular part of british motoring heritage you know transport heritage 
Yeah. Now, of course, this car is not going to represent any transport heritage because, in effect, it's a new car. It's built on a heritage body shell, and so, therefore, it didn't exist in the 1960s. So you're not going to buy it for that reason. So those people that buy it for pure history alone are not going to be interested, and, and I understand why. Then you've got the people like me who buy a classic car mainly because of the experience that it gives you driving the smell the sound more than anything else the sound and that ability to sort of tame a kind of rough and ready old engine and get it to run well and perform brilliantly that for me is what classic cars are all about that for me is the buzz that i get out of them would I be interested in mine if I turned it on and it whistled me down the road sounding like a milk float? Honestly, I think I'd rather just not have one. It would leave me completely cold. Because really? why would I sit in an MGB and deal with the cramped cockpit and the wind noise and the cold and all the rest of it when I could have... I don't know a jaguar i-pace or one of the new mg5 evs or a zs ev why yeah. why would it do that i have a classic car because of that engine that noise the smells the sound the ability to drive it well i think what these cars really only appeal to are those third group of people in addition to those two I've mentioned, that buy a classic car for its aesthetics, for its looks, for yeah. a statement of their own fashion and the statement of their own personality because they don't want to drive a car that looks like everyone else's. That is what, that's the market that that car appeals to, but it ain't the market that I'm sitting in because to me, a classic car is all about the engine yeah I, I i don't disagree with you um I, I think i'm coming at it from a different point of view i'm looking at this from a where will we be in you know 15 20 years time in terms of continuing to run our classic cars you know will we still be able to to nip down to the petrol station and put 20 quids worth of, of fuel in in, a, in your car and, and have a sunday out um, I think if it came to that point where suddenly, you know, if like petrol stations become fewer and farer between um, and it becomes increasingly challenging to use my MGB with its current drivetrain, would I consider swapping the B series for a battery pack if it meant I could continue to use the car and continue to enjoy the car um, yes I think I probably would mm. yeah interesting I suppose you own your MGB it has different reasons for your ownership than perhaps my my car does for me and, and I think that's ultimately yeah. where this is going to come down to you may well have classic cars powered by electric but they're going to be a very different owner with a very different set of reasons for owning that car than perhaps people like myself who own it pretty much for the engine to be honest it's why people buy mgb v8s over the standard mgb engine it's something about the engine that changes the way a car behaves and feels it changes its whole personality there's no way an mgb v8 is the same as an mgb gt with a standard four cylinder they're a totally different beast that engine is the heart of the car that changes what it is take that away and i wonder how i would sustain my interest in these cars you know um 
Yeah, I know what you mean. I think this is a potentially massive debate, really. Yeah, it's a big conundrum, um, but it's one we're going to yeah. have to face because, as you rightly point out, if all of our daily vehicles do comply to this 2030 date where basically new vehicles from 2030 will not be allowed to be built unless they are all electric effectively the internal combustion engine using fossil fuels will be dead on new cars in 2030 we'll be fine for decades to come there's a plentiful supply of fuel and there'll be a plentiful supply of existing road vehicles that need it in order to make sure that we can still drive our cars on the road further forward than that though you're quite right to point out the fact that probably our biggest problem is not whether emissions out of the back of our classics are a problem or not it's actually more likely to be whether we can buy the petrol in the first place because mm. if it's such a small market you know we're going to have to work hard through channels like the fbhvc to make sure that service stations exist and that they are there with petrol on the forecourts when no one really wants it apart from us lot and we account for such a small proportion uh, one of the figures that the FBHVC quote regularly is that classic vehicles, historic vehicles, and this includes motorbikes, um, commercial vehicles, buses, coaches, that kind of stuff, account for less than a quarter of 1% of all the total miles driven on the UK roads in a year. It's basically nothing. And so we are going to have to fight quite hard to make sure petrol remains on forecourts. And let's also hope that this technology gets cheaper as well, because if an MGB suddenly starts costing you 90 grand, it's not <coughs> going to be a cheap hobby to get into anymore, is no, it? No, no, quite. Well, it'll certainly be interesting to see how it develops and how well it sells. Well, what do you think, listeners? It's up to you to tell us, really. We're just voicing our opinions. Are you um, Team Wayne or are you Team Adam? Yeah. <laughs> Where do you sit on electric vehicles? Get in touch, let us know. We'd love to hear your points of view on this. You can do that easily via mgpodcast.uk. Fill out the contact form on there if you want to leave us a written message. Or, of course, you can use the voice recorder on there as well, which would be even better because we get to hear you and put you on the show mgpodcast.uk just click the contact button there and you can talk to us and we'll put you on the show where do you sit with electric vehicles where do you sit on an electric mgb for the future we'd love to hear your point of view here on the mg car club podcast and as i mentioned leaving voice messages so that we can get you on the show we've had one and this is from gary taylor he sent us a message through the website and gary has this to say hello wayne and adam uh, my name is Gary Taylor, member of the uh, Car Club, and I just wanted to say I thoroughly enjoyed the MG Car Club podcast. Uh, it comes out every week, and I've been listening since uh, since number one. Uh, strangely enough, I was driving through Abidon uh, the other day. Uh, I'm the treasurer at the Aston Martin Houses Trust, so it's en route, and I had the uh, podcast going at that time, so it seemed very, very appropriate. Having said that, I tend to listen to the podcast on my MG Car Club podcast weight loss program. I started it during lockdown and I've nearly lost a stone now here in Devon. And I, uh, when I can, I plug in the uh, podcast and listen to the wisdom and wit of uh, Wayne, Adam and the guests, which are always entertaining. It was during while one of the walks that um, I was listening to the MGF themed podcast about the 25th anniversary. And strangely enough, as I was walking along, I saw a young man pull into his driveway with a with an MGF. 
and it caught my eye and we made eye contact and I waved and I just said, uh, how are you enjoying the car? I'm thinking of getting one. And he smiled back. He says, well, I'm thinking of selling it because I'm going to university soon. So I had a quick look round and um, exchanged phone numbers and I hope to have a proper look at it very soon. So how are these things come together? Uh, finally, about the club shop. Uh, if you could stop mentioning it on the podcast, that would be great because it is actually costing me quite a bit of money. Uh, but otherwise, all excellent. Keep up the good work, guys. Thanks very much. Well, what a lovely message, Adam, to receive from Gary there. And it's it's proof, if ever it was needed, that the MG Car Club podcast is good for your health because he's losing weight as a result of listening to us. Yeah, fair play to him. Um, I mean, I've certainly put on a little bit of weight during lockdown. So, uh, no, well done, Gary. And uh, hopefully we can keep you entertained and keep you out on those walks as we uh, head into the uh, colder time of the year. Absolutely. And uh, best of luck with sourcing that MGF. And there's an accolade for the MGF, if ever you needed one. An Aston Martin man is buying one. So if ever you needed to know how good an MGF is, well, there we are. Gary's proven it to you. And, um, <laughs> and you know, do keep spending money in the club shop. It does help us all. We're not going to stop talking about it at all. We'll carry on rambling on about uh, the great products that we've got in the club shop. And we've got some really special stuff to talk about on this episode that's all to come very very soon and uh, i guess really adam we're just sat here waiting for our commission to do the aston martin podcast next aren't we well we are available yes mm, available um, i do have hire. agent i do have an agent i do have representation so uh, do drop us a line yeah. <laughs> yes yeah if you're needing to know who that agent is it's me by the way so yeah. um, <laughs> Uh, it's great to hear from Gary. You can do that too. Get in touch with your messages. mgpodcast.uk is the website. Now, we lost a very, very significant name in MG history a couple of weeks ago. Way back on the 9th of October, the earlier on in this month, we lost a legend in MG circles as Don Hater passed away at the age of 94. Don Hayter played a major part in designing the MGB and uh, he worked for the MG Car Company as their chief body draftsman from 1956 after a spell at Aston Martin. And after spending some time developing the MGA twin cam, he started work on MG's brand new and sexy model for the 1960s. It was to be MG's biggest selling sports car of all time. It was to be an iconic piece of British engineering and it was of course the MGB. He was involved with two prototypes wasn't he Adam? The EX205 and the EX214, the two cars that you can see in the British Motor Museum to this day and once they'd got those through management he was given the go-ahead and it was then his job to make the car buildable and to finalise those little details that go into car production and car design and in particular was the hood arrangement and the windscreen as well. Um, and of course he worked very heavily on the design of the dashboard. There's no getting around just how significant for MG Don Hater's work was, is there really? You know, he was part of a legendary team here at uh, Abingdon in the 60s. And not only that, he was a, he was a, he was a gentleman. He was a, a warm, 
um, person to talk to. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting him a couple of times here at Kimber House. Um, and I remember him telling me that people would always ask him if he remembered their particular MGB. Um, and more often than not, he was he was kind enough to humour them and tell them that, yes, he did remember their particular car being built. So, uh, yeah, an amazing, amazing gentleman with, with an amazing legacy in the form of the MGB. Well, of course, he was made a vice president of the MG Car Club back in 2001 to recognise that amazing impact that he had. Yes, and even more recently, him and his wife Mary recently bought an MG3. So, you know, all the way through his life, Don remained very loyal to, to the MG mark. Absolutely. Well, of course, there'll be a full tribute to Don in a future issue of Safety Fast magazine. And he was, as Adams just described, a real friend to everyone at the MG Car Club. And he was around for a long time to share all those stories and they are all hidden away within a fantastic book as well that was put together that you can get actually from the MG Car Club shop, shop.mgcc.co.uk. Uh, it's published by Veloci and when they launched the book way back for in time for the MGB 50th anniversary, uh, they actually interviewed Don himself and there's a couple of little nuggets here that we'll share with you from the Veloci video about what Don had to say about his time working for MG. MG was a, a friendly factory. I always looked forward to going to work. The fact that people were enjoying and coming back to us, that was great. But I never thought where it would go after I retired. Uh, I've been telling people ever, ever since that the bloke really responsible for the MGB was Sid Enever, my boss. Uh, completely underrated guy in the car industry but absolutely uh, uh, a super guy well that book the mgb story by don hater is published by veloci is available direct from the publisher or of course from the mg car club shop and our tributes to don hater continue next as we're joined by motoring journalist john lakey the mg car club podcast the mg car club the mark of friendship. To take advantage of our many membership benefits, access to our centers and registers, and to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, join us now at mgcc.go.uk. Sharing your passion for MG on the MG Car Club podcast. John Lakey, welcome along. Hi, Wayne. Nice to see you, mate, even if what? it is a three-inch screen. Well, that's right. Uh, here we are during uh, the pandemic, and uh, it all continues through Zoom, basically, because normally you and I meet each other out at shows and events, and we sort of like passing ships in corridors and what have you, usually over a concourse carpet. But um, it has been a weird year, hasn't it, all told? Yeah, it absolutely has. It's very strange, isn't it? You've got all these old cars, like, and we can't go anywhere with them, and and... Yeah, it's been very strange. It's actually been busy for me because the television industry has kind of gone into a different way of doing TV. So I've been doing a lot of archive work um, because we can't go out and film anything. So we're starting to make programs based on motoring archive. So I've, I had two or three weeks when I was quiet and then I got busy again. So, um, but it's, it's, it's not nice, is it? I'd love to get back to going to events. We first met way back when I was working for Top Gear, doing podcasts just like these for Top Gear Live and all of the live shows that Clarkson, Hammond and May used to tour the world with. And uh, that's where we met, first of all. And you have pretty much always worked in some way or another within the TV industry, but all based around car shows, haven't you? 
absolutely yeah i start well, i started in tv in 97 so i was 30 because i did i did car magazines and newspapers as a photographer and cameraman first and then got into tv um by john bentley who most people will know as being a presenter on the gadget show who gave me a job as a researcher on top gear and um since then yes i've although i still do magazine work i, I write in classic car weekly quite often for instance about my mgb often um I, I most the vast majority of what I do is um, is based around television, and I not only I, I obviously did Top Gear for a long time, and I did the Cars Star, Clarkson's Car Years, Gears and Tears, the Stock Car Show, Racing Legends, where we had Sterling Moss life story being told by Sir Patrick Stewart, those kind of programs, um, and uh, I'm currently doing a, a lockdown archive show, which is being presented by Anne Tanstead and Mike Brewer. Well, it was that TV background, of course, that also led you to create the MG at 50 documentary with the MG Car Club, uh, what seems like ages ago now, actually. And of course, that was when you really met Don Hater, wasn't it, in interviewing him for that show and on other occasions as well. So let's talk about Don. Obviously, uh, we had the sad news of his passing uh, earlier on this month at the age of 94. Tell us about the very first time you met him, first of all. Actually, yeah, I, I, I met him um, doing a program called Clarkson's Car Years, which was in 1999 or two, maybe early 2000. I think it might probably February 2000 because um, we did, uh, there were half hour programs with, with Clarkson looking at different aspects of the history of motoring. And um, we did one half hour show called Why Do People Love British Sports Cars? which you may remember involved clerks and nailing planks of wood together using a hammer that I'd inherited from my dad. <laughs> Things <laughs> like um, But we did a little sort of skit in it um, called Killjoy, which was a, um, a, a pastiche of the morning talk show that Robert Kilroy Silk used to do at the time. I organised it at Bewley. It was outdoors and we got loads of open car enthusiasts with Morgans and Caterhams and MGs and Triumph TRs and things like that all together in their Biggles coats on a misty February morning with Clarkson with a mic, with Killjoy written on the mic. And we parked their cars in a sort of semicircle and then sat them around their cars. And some of them were people I knew, some of them were people I found from clubs. And I, I phoned the MG Car Club uh, at the time and um, said, you know, I'm, I'm looking for people to take part in this. And they said, well, why don't you have Don come along and designed it? <laughs> Fantastic because I'd always wanted to meet him. I knew, absolutely knew who he was, um, but uh, but never really thought I'd, I'd meet him. And um, he came along in his green V8. And to be honest, he ended up not being used in the show because he gave Clarkson as good as he got. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, I mean, he appears in the background, but he, I don't think we used, I haven't watched it for years, but I don't think we used any talking parts from Don because... Um, he actually, the whole point of the thing, point is the wrong word, but the editorial reason why it happened was to say, look, British sports cars were coming to the end of their line. They're not appealing. Everybody wanted a Golf GTI. You know how Jeremy Clarkson works. You, you have to, you know, you have to have a narrative arc that is strong and flows upwards and downwards through the show. And, uh, and it worked brilliantly as an editorial piece. It was amusing. Everybody took it in the spirit in which it was meant. It was all good fun. But Don um, actually, you know, put up a really spirited and good defence of the MGB, which was so good that in the end it sort of didn't work for the show. 
<laughs> that was the first time I came across him. And I, I had a chat to him afterwards. And because um, I'd always wanted to meet him. And I sort of thought and I, it was very busy in the morning. There was lots of people. And um, in fact, my, uh, my a friend of mine, uh, Darren Rapley, if you're listening to this, Darren, he might well do because he's still got an MGB. I think he's still a member. Um, and he actually turned up in a Golf GTI because he's, um, his MGB broke down that morning. So <laughs> um, he, he was he was the butt of a lot of Clarkson's jokes. I went I had a chat with Don afterwards and sort of managed to get some time with him talking about his life and asked him about the thing I wanted to ask him about, to be honest, was um, was SRX 210, um, the, the Le Mans MGA car, which is my uncle, Ted Lund, and um, and which is what sort of indoctrinated me to MGs, really, I suppose, as a kid in a nice way. And uh, and. What was brilliant was Don said, yeah, he, he designed the aero modifications for that car, um, the, the fastback roof and, um, and the, the grill on the, on the later, the sort of later incarnation of it. But he said, well, I said, you know, did he put it in a wind tunnel? Did he do any tests? He said, no, no, I just drew something that I thought looked right. And I talked to Sid about it and we, we, we just looked at it and we said, yeah, that'll give us an extra 10 miles an hour. And they put it on the straight at Le Mans and it did. So their, their literal guesswork was, you know, within 5% of being spot on, which just shows you what a clever chap he was, really. I know he was inspired, really, by the XK120 and the work of Malcolm Sayer over at Jaguar. He had a similar background in the sense that he'd come through World War II as an apprentice working at Cowley for Press Steel, hadn't he? So... The aero industry was ever present, I guess, as he was coming into his engineering career. Absolutely. And also, if you think about because he actually plotted the curves for the XK120 press tools. If you think about anybody having a career in the motor industry in that era, if you're going to have mentors of the previous generation, Sir William Lyons and then Frank Feely at Aston Martin, because obviously he moved from Press Steel to Aston Martin, you couldn't really get better mentors. Show me a pre-war car that is better looking than a V12 Lagonda Rapide that Frank Freely designed. He's one of the absolute great designers. He doesn't get mentioned in perhaps the way that maybe Jean Bugatti gets talked about or whatever. But actually, those those late thirties Lagondas are just they're just beautiful, aren't they? Yeah. Obviously, when uh, when David Brown bought Aston Martin. Um, he effectively inherited Frank Feely. So he bought Lagonda as well as Aston Martin. He effectively inherited Frank Feely. And, um, and Feely designed the early David Brown Aston Martins, the, the DB1, the DB2, the Lagonda 3-litre, etc. And, uh, and he really taught Don about automotive styling. And um, if you're going to have a mentor in the English coach building industry then you couldn't really have a better one could you no absolutely and when you think about it at the time many of the mg competitors and i'm thinking squarely of triumph here really were having to go to italy to get their styling updated as the 1960s approached but here was don taking on these styling houses like michelotti's in italy and you know in the back room at abingdon there designing what would become one of the biggest selling sports cars of all time. And we probably don't give that enough credit in motoring history. No, I would agree. I think, I think, and I, I'm biased. I've owned MGBs a long time and will continue to do so as long as I possibly can. And I love them. But I do think 
people tend to laud the Italian sports cars of the era, the Fiat 124 Spider, the Alpha, Alpha Spider, and the MGB gets treated almost as rusty street furniture in some people's heads in a, in a way, maybe less so now than 10 years ago. But actually, I think an MGB is absolutely as beautiful as an Alpha Spider, um, in some ways better. It's certainly a better car structurally. The, the thing that, that um, and I've owned an Alpha Spider, um, and it, it had massive scuttle shake compared to an MGB. Um, obviously, the thing that the Alpha wins on perhaps is the um, is the engine. But um, in terms of styling, a chrome bumper MGB, I think, is easily as beautiful as any car of its era and more beautiful than most. And I think that the proof of that, in a way, is frontline because people are happy to pay £100,000 for a frontline MGB which they see as a beautiful, exotic thing because you don't see them on the road every day in the way that you did 10 or 15 years ago. So suddenly they appear new and fresh. Even just earlier on in this episode of the podcast, Adam and I were talking about the all-electric MGB that's just been launched to the world. And again, it's taking modern technology, but still retaining that iconic design. And as you say, it's just proof that people still have a hunger for that look, that feel, um, and that, that, that icon, really, of, of design that Don, that Don created. And he was an incredibly modest man, wasn't he? I met him on a few occasions because, you know, working in the historic vehicle journalism industry he was one of those essential interviews that at some point in your life you had to get and you had to chat to him and I always was amazed about how he sort of deflected this inference that the MGB was down to him and said well no no not really it was down to my bosses he was tremendously modest wasn't he he was fantastically modest and just brilliant company as well and um obviously I'm sure it was a team thing and Sid would have, was a very important part of that and there were there were others as we all know but um I think a what makes Don important to the MGB is that he kept with it so in terms of even right at the end Don was overseeing the conversion to the O series MGB that we all know should have happened and and was prototyped and even the O series turbo that was built but but obviously didn't go into production um and those were his projects, really, by then. So, actually, he is the father of the MGB in many, many ways, not just because he absolutely was responsible for much of the look and, and the engineering of the body of the car in its original form, but also because he stayed in that position through MG, rising up a little bit, but everything that happened on the MGB, he oversaw and and had opinions about whether it was good or bad but at the end of the day he was a pragmatic engineer who understood both the politics and the engineering and solved it as best he could with the budget he had the media in the uk when they talk about the british motor industry always portray and it's something that does irritate me i have to say they always portray this industry full of workers that didn't really care about the products that they were making that were always on strike and always falling out with their management but don is an example of why that is just not true and 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 he personifies pride really in the mgb and 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 that's because he stuck with that car all the way up until the very last days, he had his own MGB V8 and he drove it to car club events. He was a fan just like you and I. <laughs> Absolutely. And he was, um, 
obviously that MGB V8 that you talk about, the Brooklyn's green car, um, uh, was actually effectively the last MG sort of built at Abingdon because it was it was an O series uh, prototype body shell that he then bought off the factory and um, and built into a, a V8 Roadster and kept the rubber bumpers, which is something I, I used to slightly. Um, uh, a, I was surprised when I first realised that he'd done that, and B, I used to slightly rag him about it when I saw him. He said, "Well, it was practical, and I, and I, you know, we did them, and it was what it, it is, what it is." Um, but that car, I think, is 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 quite important in a weird sort of way. Um, and the, I mean, certainly, the last time I saw Don, which is last year, um, I worked for Corgi Models. I write their catalogue, and uh, we did a model of that car. And we we took um, I drove down to Don's in my um, MGB GT. Edward, who owns the uh, the Brooklyn's green car that Don built now, uh, brought that up, and, and we photographed Don with the model of the car in the in his old V8. And obviously by then he was quite infirm, but and he was you know he tired easily, but as soon as he sat in his old car his face lit up and he just said, I'm home. <laughs> and I just thought that was brilliant. He, he, he's, he's obviously, um, wasn't in good health by then. And, um, he, he had a, a scooter, uh, a mobility scooter in which, on which he put an MG badge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, he got out of his mobility scooter. He got in his old VA and he just relaxed in the, and he just, you know, he was, and he didn't want to get out. When we finished taking the pictures, he was, yeah, because maybe, um, I don't know, that may have been the last time he saw that car. I don't know, but um, it, it was, yeah, it was really quite a touching moment. Well, you had another nice moment with him, didn't you, when you actually took him out in your MGB GT and you got a feeling for just how well he knew that car at that point, didn't you? Yeah, I did absolutely. Um, my I, when I made the um, the MGB fifty film, um, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do it initially because it it was a project that I funded myself, um, and it was one of those projects that um, really it what there wasn't really a way of doing it that was financially prudent, <laughs> but. It was such an important thing, and as someone who loves MGBs, and they are they are still available the DVD uh, available now from the MG Car Club shop shop.mgcc.co.uk. They're all in stock. Get yours now. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Plug over. Thank you very much for that. In the end, what I ended up doing was basing it um, around the um, uh, seminar that we did at Abingdon, of which obviously Don was a very key part. But at one point, I was going to do it as a more historical piece. And I would still like to do that. And one day, hopefully, maybe when I get towards retirement, I'll, I'll go back and revisit what I shot. Because I did interview some other people. Um, I interviewed Basil Wales, for instance. And I went to Don's house and spent a day with Don, um, filming him, uh, talking about his entire career in the end. Because although we'd gone, um, I'd gone there really to talk about the MGB in my head, I thought, well, actually, this is a chance that I'm not going to get again. And really, I could have gone with going back for a second day because we sort of ran out of time. And we I must have six hours of tape, if, if not seven hours of tape. 
Um, so there's a lot to go out there. Um, and he talked about Frank Feely, he talked about Aston Martin. He talked about how proud he was of the DB24 Mark III, uh, which was the Aston that he really designed, the facelift, which turned the grill into, uh, from a, from a two piece or sorry, from a three piece grill into a single piece grill. Uh, that was Don's idea and the, the, the tail lamps that, that updated the Mark III. Um, and of course, Aston Martin still used that grill. So, Again, this is a this is a man who designed the best-selling sports car in the world. Designed the grill that is probably the most iconic grill in British sports car history, and plotted the curves for the XK120. I mean, you know, plus other things as well. Um, it's amazing, really, um, unsung hero or what? Um, but at lunchtime, we went down the pub, as you should, um, to to have dinner, and and I took him to the pub in my BGT which I was absolutely made up about, I must admit. Um, but also a little bit nervous about, because you think this is, you know, he's going to know whether this, this car's any good or not. <laughs> and um, and we, we backed out the driveway and set off, and it was only, I don't know, three miles or something to the pub. And within 100 yards, he told me how big my front anti-roll bar was, which, which was correct, because I've got, I've got the, um, the bigger front anti-roll bar. Um, he told me um, that I had the uprated Moss lever arm shock absorbers, which I do. And he told me what cam my engine was running. <laughs> wow. <laughs> which again, he was what he was correct on because it's a, an Aselli built 1860 with, a, I can't even remember the number myself now, but it, it has a number and it, it's the Aselli cam probably made by Kent, I guess, but sold by Aselli. And uh, Don said, oh, I could tell that as soon as he started the car by the way it was ticking over. <laughs> and isn't that amazing? Because here he is, principally a designer, but with such an engineering knowledge as well. But that's that's of the era, isn't it? You had to have sort of multidisciplined approach to car design in his day. And, and really, absolutely, really, he was trained as an engineer, I think, in, in basic terms. Obviously, he's known because he did the styling, or the majority of it, but in actual fact, um, his basic training at Prestil was in engineering more than styling in a way, because you did a rounded engineering apprenticeship. Yeah. And I think that's perhaps something that that is missing from modern life. You, you, you get people that have gone and done a degree in, or even a doctorate in something quite esoteric. I, I, I know someone who's got a degree in flame front technology which is how the, um, the the flame goes through a combustion chamber in a, in a petrol engine, which is, I'm sure is incredibly fascinating thing and I'm sure helps make engines more efficient. But actually, it wasn't until he got older that he sort of first laid a spanner on a car. Um, and he'd got a degree in the theory in the theory before he was before he even really understood how starter motors work, for instance, because he was theoretical rather than practical. And um, I think that's a bit of a loss to, um, to modern life sometimes, is that um, in Don's era, you did an engineering apprenticeship and design was part of that, but so were many other aspects. Mm. And, and Don absolutely was an engineer through and through. He was a very pragmatic man. Although he knew how to make a, a motor car beautiful, he also understood the politics of BLBMC and the American legislation that stopped the MGB from um, 
being maybe the car it should have been towards the end of its career. Um, and um, understood that he had to work within those parameters. And yeah, Don was very pragmatic and, and also very honest, but, but understanding of the politics. So for instance, when he, when he talked about the MGC, he was very keen on making um, an MGB with a, with a Coventry Climax V8 in it, um, because obviously it's a lovely lightweight engine. It would have produced power, um, but commercially, Obviously, it wasn't a goer. Um, and um, he really wasn't very keen on, on the whole MGC thing initially because both he and Sid felt that they had the engine forced upon them and, um, and that it was basically far too heavy. Obviously, what they then did was get on with it and engineer a car, which obviously we now realise actually works very well and is a, is a, is a car with great character. Um, but um, fundamentally they would have preferred to have built a lighter engine. And, and he was very honest about that. And he was, he was straightforward about that with the BMC management, but um, also realised that once he'd lost, if you like, and the MGC was going to happen, then absolutely we're going to do, do the best we can and make a car which works. And, um, you know, time has proven that the MGC is actually a very nice car. It, it um Obviously, got some criticism when it was new, partly due to the tire pressures. We all know about that, but um, it, it it was a very um, honest and pragmatic approach to solving a problem that BMC management had given him. And the, the same is true of the Costello cars, the V8 cars. You know, they they took a Costello V8 to pieces, and there were elements of the Costello cars that they felt weren't um, as good as they should be. And so when they engineered the, the factory one, they, they changed how the steering was done and a few other things um, to make the car um, uh, up to engineering standard, if you like, in, in MG terms. Um, so Don was, was a clever but pragmatic engineer who would make a car as beautiful as he could make it, but knew that he had to make it to a budget and he had to make it with what was available. Mm-hmm. Be fascinating to have put him in a room with Donald Healy and to see how they would have got on discussing that car because neither of them were really behind that project at the time. In fact, Healy wanted his name to be nowhere near it, didn't he? And uh, it'd be interesting to see if the two of them got together up there somewhere uh, to discuss that car. What what would what would be the outcome? Yeah, that that would have been fascinating, wouldn't it? And I mean, one of the things that that my uncle Ted always said was that. MG should have kept on with the with the twin cam program and actually what the MGB should have had as well as the 1800 was a, a two litre twin cam based on the 1800 block but with a twin cam head and maybe an alloy twin cam head so that would be the logical development just as um, uh, a Fiat did with their twin cam which obviously started off as a I think as a 1200 didn't it and then grew, grew, grew gradually larger um, and I actually own a, an MGB Roadster with a two-litre Fiat twin cam in it, which is a sort of little bit of a nod in my head to, to my uncle's head. But um, I know Don felt the same and 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 um, really liked the V8. And let's face it, we all love the V8. It's got a fantastic character. Um, but actually, a Revy um, lighter weight sports car engine, if you like, traditional sports car engine, uh, would have transformed the MGB in character in the mid 60s and and I know that he was he looked at various ways of doing that with the 
with, with the Coventry Climax ideas and, and also with the Blue Streak. They actually built a Blue Streak engine prototype, didn't they? He, he was he, he was passionate about wanting the MGB to be as good as it could possibly be. Well, he understood those politics so much so that, of course, that eventually as the big British Leyland behemoth, if you like, uh, came together and he was moved to other projects, he he took to turning the Honda Ballard into the Triumph Acclaim quite well, didn't he? And, and was actually quite proud of that work in a way. Yeah, no, I talked to him about that and I, I was just about to say that. Yeah, he, 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 people forget that the Triumph Acclaim was his last car, effectively. And... Um, it, it sort of tends to get uh, criticised as not being a triumph, and, and absolutely it isn't really in the traditional sense of the word. Um, but on the other hand, it is quite a good car. And um, the work that Don did on it to productionise it in the UK and uh, change bits of it to UK taste and re-engineer certain components to allow them to be made more easily, etc. Um, he was very proud of, and, and rightly so. And that, that shows... Um, just what a practical, pragmatic sort of chap he was. I mean, amazing moment for you, John, to have the designer of your car sat in the passenger seat, and I know that he signed it whilst he was there. Um, when you left home, left his home that day after that interview and you were looking back on it, what was the thing that really sort of stayed with you after talking to Don for all that length of time? His humility, I think, and also the fact... <laughs> <laughs> he was so the whole both he and Mary were very were very very lovely and tolerant and and this is a this um this uh, I'm not people who know me know I'm quite a big chap and I'm not the most elegant individual in the world and I basically walked into Don's house that morning and kicked a cup of coffee over onto the carpet <laughs> and and we I did that before we'd even set up the camera equipment more or less they gave me a cup of coffee we talked for a few minutes i said right i better go and get the cameras i put the coffee down i turned around and i kicked it over the carpet so we then had 10 minutes of clearing up and backing up and and everything and they absolutely saw the funny side of it and of course i was mortified and thinking oh do i do i just go home you know because <laughs> <laughs> in these people's carpet um and actually, last time I saw Mary, she said, oh, yes, it's my, it's my, it's my coffee friend, you know. <laughs> but, um, but no, they, they, were, they were lovely about it. And um, we then went outside. And, of course, actually, MGB GTs are not very big. And I'd actually, to do, in order to do that, because I was not, I, usually, I have a Citroen Xantia, which is my sort of filming car. A lot of, um, a lot of people in television have Citroens because you can fill them full of stuff and the hydrogen pneumatic suspension pumps them up and they sit level. But there was there was no way that I was going to go and see Don in a Citroen Xantia. So I actually took the front passenger seat sort of um, and, and folded that down, took the headrest off it and folded the front passenger seat flat and moved it forward so that I could get my camera equipment and my lights into the car and then i had the light the um light stands for the lights and some of the other um stands sticking out of the wabasto sunroof (laughs) (laughs) if it had rained luckily it didn't but if it had rained i would have just got wet because there was no way i was going to don hater's house in anything other than that car (laughs) and of course don came out and started to see me unloading it's like you know you you can't have got all that in there well i have 
<laughs> it's probably not the wisest thing to do in the world, but I did. And then before we put Don in, I put the headrest back in and folded the seats back up again and, you know, got it all back to standard. And then when I when I loaded it back up at seven o'clock or whatever that evening when we finished filming, I had to sort of fold it all down, take it to bits to get everything back in the car. And, uh, and it, they were just, Don was just brilliant about it because um it, it helped me load up and stuff but it more than that he saw the funny side of it and saw how important it was to me as someone who loves mgs and just took part in it in the spirit that you should let's put it that way absolutely top chap um really really we really, was really fond of him and yeah he was he was fantastically bright i think that's the other thing that maybe should be said in whatever um, field he'd gone into, he would have done well because he had a fantastically nimble brain, really, really clever man. And um, just with a great sense of humour, but very good at analysing problems and a very practical approach to life. And I think that shows through in, in how he kept the MGB in production um, and, uh, and helped to, um, to modify it in order to meet the American le safety legislations because it, it, it needed to be, because it needed, he needed to keep Abingdon going. An MG loyal fan to the last, of course, he uh, even had an MG3. He embraced the more modern MGs as much as he embraced those from... Uh, his era as well so as a final tribute to don a first for the mg car club podcast because we've got a little bit of poetry to come do you want to introduce this and and who wrote it and who's reading it for us john yes this is this is a poem by by uh, my partner a lady called Bedina statham who i met through mgs actually who um also owns an mgb um and and who is um a very keen poet. She writes children's books as well. Um, and uh, she has, um, she wrote a poem for Don because when we went down to photograph him for the Corgi model, um, she came with me and we went in the MGBGT. Um, and uh, she wrote this poem, printed it out, put it in a frame and, uh, and gave it to Don. Um, and uh, this is her reading her poem. Don Hater, MGB's imaginative creator. Drive an MGB, it's the best that can be. There is nothing greater, designed by Don Hater. Joined in 1956, Don was soon up to tricks to take MG from A to B. He put curves and wings onto mechanical kings. A vertical grille gave license to thrill. Where the roads to all GT, you can guarantee that on the open road, nothing's better to behold. So when you see another MGB, wave, it's the code we uphold to express that we bless the beauty inside Don's incredible mind. The imaginative designer could have made nothing finer. Thank you, Don. The MG Car Club Podcast. Safety Fast, the magazine of the MG Car Club. Get your copy now by joining us at mgcc.co.uk. 
Well, great to hear John Lakey's own memories of MGB ownership there. And of course, by putting together that story for the MGB's 50th anniversary of that time ago. And uh, good to have such an eminent motoring journalist in our midst, Adam. Yes, Wayne. John's a John's a lovely bloke. I've known John for for years now, way back when I was working on Classics Monthly, um, and I've almost forgiven him for putting me on the cutting room floor of his MGB 50th anniversary DVD. <laughs> I spent weeks preparing for my interview, and you know, sat eagerly in front of his cameras, and then uh, bought bought my copy of the DVD. I bought my copy of the DVD. I hasten to add. And uh, eagerly rushed home, popcorn ready, said to Sarah, come on, sit down, let's watch this. And uh, I was nowhere to be seen. I didn't even make the uh, optional extras, mate. I'm, I'm nowhere. But um, I'm, sh- I'm not bitter about it, as I'm sure you can tell. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I mean, you've forgotten about it, really, haven't you, Adam? Yeah, I can <laughs> yeah. tell. Yeah. <laughs> and now let's have a look at uh, the shop and what's going on in the shop and what we've got on offer in the shop and uh well you can tell it's christmas adam can't you because there's all sorts of new products arriving all the time in the mg car club shop the quality goes up and up and up and there's some nice stuff for gifts appearing the first of which is some new anniversary overalls and these are navy blue with the 90th anniversary logo on them and basically if you want to stop getting in the doghouse for messing up your best clothes <laughs> when you're working on the mg just don't don't risk it just put the overalls on whatever you're wearing will be protected they'll keep you warm in the winter don't be messing about just buy them they're only 30 quid as well i think that's quite cheap for overalls yeah they're really affordable they, we had some earlier in the year but they sold out so quickly um so inic has got some more back in stock um i don't know about you but when it comes to buying overalls especially for the winter i tend to go a size bigger you have to because then you can really layer up yeah. underneath oh you have to so nice and warm keep yourself buttoned up um yeah they're, they're perfect i've got uh, i've got a set hung at home um they just make sense yeah no that's the top tip actually top buying tip is always buy one size bigger than you think you need because by the time you get your jumper on under there to keep yourself warm and you know if you're wearing under trousers or something you do need that extra bit of movement and of course what you need to ensure that you can do this is really important is to lift your arms above your head easily so it doesn't obstruct you if you have too small a size you can't often move your arms around if you're laying underneath the car on a crawler or something you can actually damage your shoulder blades and your shoulder muscles if you're pushing against some overalls that are too small for you so top tip there ask me how i know this uh i have actually (laughs) damaged shoulder muscles before because i had overalls that were too small for me so do order a size bigger than you think you need the other good thing about overalls is that you know you don't then get any drafts going down the back of your trousers there's nothing worse than you know you're bent over you know it's a bit chilly the old builder's bum no no one needs that no one needs to be sort of desperately trying to pull jumpers down and keep t-shirts tucked in so yeah bundle up with a decent pair of overalls 100% Merino Lambswool Scarves are now available in the MG Car Club shop. They're priced at just £28.50. They're 100% Merino Lambswool. There's a bit of a backstory to these, and it's quite romantic. So sit back, relax, and I'll tell you where these Lambswool Scarves come from. Located in the seaside village of Downings on Donegal's Wild Atlantic Way, McNutt of Donegal have been producing some of the world's finest weaves for over 60 years. 
Every collection is designed in-house by a dedicated team of talented designers who remain constantly inspired by the rugged coastline and nature's playground that surrounds them. Using only the very best quality wool combined with excellent local craftsmanship, McNutt of Donegal creates something very special every day. And it has the MG Car Club brand on the leather tag on the end of this scarf. And there's three colour combinations to go with it. It's lovely, a real piece of quality. And it's an ideal gift for that MG fan that has it all. Have I sold them hard enough? Definitely. I just wanted to say McNutt of Donegal once again. <laughs> he sounds like a splendid chap and he's got very good quality scarves. There we are. That's our products all coming through the MG Car Club shop now. You can see them at shop.mgcc.co.uk. Of course, you'll see them in the weekly newsletter that you'll get if you subscribe to the MG Car Club as well. And you can sign up to that via our website very, very easily. And on there, you'll get notifications of new podcast episodes as they come through and all the latest news from the MG Car Club. That, I think, Adam, just about rounds up another episode of the MG Car Club podcast. So for me, Wayne Scott, cheerio hope to see you again very soon and enjoy the autumn sunshine when it appears and from me adam sloman i'll see you next week bye subscribe to receive new episodes of the mg car club podcast at mgpodcast.uk 